just uh, remain standing if you would. We're going to kind of get this resituated. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, if you would, Mark chapter 10. And uh, I will preach fast this morning. If you will listen fast, we will get through this. Mark chapter 10, going to begin reading in verse number 17. Mark chapter 10 and verse number 17 is where we're going to begin reading. As he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Verse 23, then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. And Peter began to say to him, See, we've left all and followed you. And Jesus answered and said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now than in this time, Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And then verse 31, that many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence in this place today. We thank you, Lord, for those who have worked so hard, who have diligently served for so many years to make glad tidings the church that it is today. We pray, God, that we would continue in that same spirit. And I ask God today that your word would speak to us, that we would have ears to hear, that you would supernaturally captivate the attention of everyone in this room so that we can hear that which the Holy Spirit would speak to us today. I ask God that you would help me to speak not a single word of my own, but only that which is from you. I pray that your anointing that could never be earned and could never be deserved would rest upon my life as I share the word today. And would you speak to us, change us, and transform us in these moments together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are, uh, we are in week two of a little mini-series inside uh, the larger series as we are working our way through Mark's gospel. And uh, we have come to chapter 10, and we have uh, taken these this narrative of Mark 10 and divided it into three weeks as a mini-series simply called Family Finances and Fame. And uh, last week we dealt with a very difficult issue, uh, the, the context within the family of divorce. 
And today we are tackling what for some is a, also an uncomfortable subject, although it should not be, but that is uh, the subject of money, our wealth, our finances. We're going to spend the next few moments looking at uh, Mark chapter 10 and talk about what Jesus teaches us about our finances. The text we are dealing with it reads pretty, uh, pretty uncomfortably and pretty oddly uh, to our world in 2019. Uh, a man comes to Jesus and Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. That's a little bit problematic, a little bit troubling to many today. It's even troubling for those in the church to kind of grapple with that and wrap their minds around how they are to apply this text. The text that Jesus uh, is engaged in this dialogue with this rich man, this text focuses closely on the issue of our finance, our resources, and our earthly possessions. It reminds us again that when Jesus called his followers, he was calling them to a quite different uh, journey than what has become very popular in our contemporary Western world. Jesus was not calling them to a membership card and a show up on Sunday when it's convenient kind of walk after Christ. He was calling them to be followers of of his who lived with a radical dependence and radical trust upon him. This text stands as a rebuke to some of the flashy televangelism and that world that so many charismatics have cut their teeth on that seems to say the more you have, the more blessed you are. This text would certainly challenge that way of thinking. The text, and I would invite you to ask yourself as we walk through this today, I think this text asks the question for all of us, am I really, am I really a follower of Jesus? Here's how I'm going to approach the text today. Three ways. First of all, uh, we're just going to tell the story. I'm going to hear the story. I want you to hear the story of the text again. Then secondly, we're going to move from that and we are going to talk about some of the opposition to this text. What are some of the interpretive arguments against this text? And then thirdly, we are going to do our best to consider what the text implies. What are the implications for us? Let's begin by just hearing the story all over. I'm going to ask you to do this. Act as if you've never heard this story before. You've never read it. You don't have any preconceived ideas. This is the first time you are reading this text. Let's hear what it has to say to us. It begins with an inquiry of a man who wanted eternal life. Verse 17, it is apparent that this man has deep respect for Jesus. He eagerly approaches Jesus while he is on his way and immediately takes the kneeling posture. He respects him, he reveres him, and he comes to Jesus eagerly and with great respect. He even goes so far as to call him good teacher. He respected him, he understood that he was a rabbi that was so well revered and so well respected. And the question that he poses to Jesus is a pretty heavy question. Good teacher, tell me. 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's obvious that this man thought that spiritual piety or spiritual works or, or godliness could earn eternal life. Because his question was framed that way. What must I do? There has to be something I need to do to inherit eternal life. Notice the response of Jesus in verse 18 and 19. The oriental custom or the custom of the east would have been for Jesus to respond to that man who called him a good teacher by saying something like, well, thank you, kind sir, for your sincere compliment. But instead, Jesus rebuked the man for his audacity. What are you doing calling me good, Jesus said. There is only one that is good, and that is God. And then Jesus points him to the commandments All of these commandments have to do with relationships, with neighbor. He said, what must I do? Jesus said, keep the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. All of these have to do with relationships that were clearly, in the eyes of Jesus, the best measure of one's reverence for God. But notice the testimony of the man in verse 20. When Jesus said, keep the commandments, the man immediately replied, I have kept all of these since my youth, probably about age 12. The Apostle Paul felt that way too. In Philippians, Paul said, when it comes to the righteousness of the law, I'm blameless. I've kept all of those rules. Now, now some would say that the man's reply when he said, I have kept all of these from my youth, that the man's reply was almost like a triumphant reply. Well, good. I'm secure. I've kept all of those things. I'm, I'm in now. But I would suggest to you that is not at all what this man said. I see in this man disappointment. He said, but master, I've done all of those things. And yet I still don't feel secure. I've kept all the rules. I've done all of those things you just said. But I still don't feel like I have eternal life. Or I wouldn't have asked you how I know that I can have eternal life. That's why I came, Jesus, so quickly to ask you. Because I've been doing all that stuff. And I still don't feel like I know that I have eternal life. And I think the loving appeal of Jesus affirms that interpretation. Because... Jesus looked at him, the text says, and he loved him. Jesus saw the struggle. He saw how earnest that man was. He knew that the man had tried to be obedient. He knew that this man wanted to be assured of eternal life. And he also knew that that man didn't feel security. He could tell that man was not secure in his eternity at all. That's why he rushed to him and asked. And so Jesus looked at that man almost pitifully, and he loved him. And then he said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and take up your cross and follow me. Jesus seems to be telling this man that perfect achievement of the law will only come When one is fully surrendered and renounces his own achievements, Jesus would say, listen, you're not going to be secure as long as you think it's something you do. 
Until you renounce all of your stuff, all of your accomplishments, you will not find that security. So what Jesus asked for, listen to me, in this case was appropriate. It was going to force this man who had achieved so much to be honest and say, I trust the master enough to follow him and give up everything. Jesus wanted to claim this man for himself and for this man to follow him. But notice the departure of the man. He left and he went away sad. He went away sorrowful because the text says he was rich. He had a lot of possessions. You ever wonder what the disciples thought when they saw this rich man walking away? Don't you think they may have thought, Jesus, you just let that guy get away. That man could have built our coffers. He could have added to the treasury. He could have helped us accomplish our goals. And you let this wealthy man get off the hook. They are dumbfounded. He would have been a great asset to their cause. And their mouths are hanging open in wonder as he walks away sorrowfully. And then Jesus, as he often does, gives some special instruction to the disciples. He says to them how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they're kind of astonished and they look at him and he repeats it again how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then he gives a metaphor. It is easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Note how this flies in the face of prosperity teaching that says that the blessed are always the wealthy. Jesus indicates that riches pose a particular challenge to one's spiritual life. They tempt us to have a sense of security that comes with our wealth and a temptation to trust in our material resources. The camel was the largest Palestinian animal. And the needle was the smallest opening imaginable. Humanly speaking, that was impossible. And so the disciples ask Jesus a question and he answers them. They say to them, then who in the world could be saved? If it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, how in the world could anybody be saved? And Jesus said, you're right. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I want you to look right here for just a moment. And and this is maybe one of the most important junctures in this message. Because there is an important truth that is spelled out here. And that is, listen closely. Salvation comes only as a divine possibility, not ever a human possibility. You cannot save yourself. I cannot save myself. Say amen if you believe that. Salvation is only a work of the Holy Spirit. With men, it is always impossible. With God, all things are possible. The rich man said, what must I do 
man, it's impossible. We're saved by grace through faith. The man wanted something he could do, so Jesus obliged him and said, okay, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come back and follow me. And the man went away sorrowfully. And then there is the final lesson that Jesus gives Peter. As Peter always does, has something to say. Peter always just wanted to insert something, so he did. Usually it was his foot in his mouth. Not so bad this time. Here's what Peter said. Peter began to say, Lord, look, we've left all and followed you. Kind of self-congratulatory. But in this case, Peter was actually on to something. He showed that he understood because Jesus responds by, by saying this. Truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus said those who do give up here on earth may in fact receive a hundredfold. You all understand in heaven we'll have a bigger family than we ever had. In this life. We'll have opportunities that are greater. Than we've ever had. Eternal life. Is what God promises those who follow him. And then there was the final reminder. In verse 31. Just a very simple statement. And we'll actually build on this next week. In the final message. But many who are first will be last. And the last first. So that's the story. We know the story. But let's understand the opposition to the text now. Because. Honestly, if we're honest, if everyone in this room is honest, the summation of this text is that it jars our materialistic culture. It shakes us up to think that Jesus commanded someone to give up everything, to sell it all, to give the proceeds to the poor and to follow him. It's a radical message. And it's very difficult to communicate to our culture. It makes us feel uncomfortable about what we have and what we own. And listen, let's be honest. Every one of us looks for a clue that somewhere in that text, Jesus isn't really talking to me. How many will be honest enough to say, I hope somewhere in there he's not talking to me. Anybody be honest enough? Hey, we have more. Only one in the first service. It was John Parks. He was honest enough to say that. But we all kind of look for a clue. Does this really speak to me? We want to whittle away at the radical nature of this demand. We want it to apply to somebody else other than us. And so because of that, there are some tactics that have been used to reinterpret these words of Jesus. Um, One of those tactics is to say, well, it only applies to the rich. And the rich are always who? The rich are always those people who have a little bit more than me, right? So so I'm kind of off the hook because this is only applied to the rich. But let me awaken you to the reality that the poor in the United States are richer than 70% of the rest of the world's population. And the poor in the U.S. are richer than the poor in the wealthiest countries in the world. Not to downplay poverty, but let me simply ask, who defines wealthy? It's always somebody that's got more than me. So that little tactic, well, this only applies to the wealthy. We can't use that. So it leads us to a second tactic. 
that I had people tell me on their way out. They've heard this for years. But it is the tactic that I call shrink the camel or enlarge the needle, right? So if we can shrink the camel or enlarge the needle. There is this wives' tale tradition that says the eye of the needle was a gate in Jerusalem. And the gate around, the wall around Jerusalem, it was a gate. And it happened to be the smallest and the shortest gate. And so the camel to get through had to kneel down and climb through. The real trick is getting back up after this. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But he had to climb underneath the gate. And that was the, that was the eye of the needle. And so with that interpretation, it simply means that rich persons now need to be humble to get into the kingdom of God. They just have to kneel down and crawl through. We have to have, be humble with our resources. The problem is there's absolutely no historical fact to that wives' tale. The first time it ever appeared was in a Shakespeare play, Richard III, that came up with the eye of the needle. And there is no historical evidence to support that. So some say the camel is mistranslation of the Aramaic word for a rope on a ship, a cable. And so instead of the camel, it really meant it's more difficult for a rope, a ship's cable, to go through the eye of a needle. And again, you can imagine that would be impossible as well. No truth to that either. One should always be aware of softening the radical comments and expectations of Jesus. Let me, let me look right here for just a moment. If we can ever say, all of these I have kept since I was a boy, we probably have watered down the claims and the truth of the gospel. Because if you think you can do enough to earn it, then you have missed the whole message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Say amen if you believe that. So we must be honest in interpretation even when our conclusions are a stumbling block or an offense to some. Great theologian Mark Twain once said, It ain't those parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the ones I do understand, right? It's a little little tricky. So let's consider the implications of the text. Five of them, and I'll be done. How many are glad you came so far this morning? We'll ask again after the third one because it may not be the same ratio, I have a feeling. Number one, wealth cannot make one holy or truly happy, and it possesses no ability to secure eternal life. Can't. No matter how much you have, no matter what you have, it can't make you happy and it cannot secure for you eternal life. This man was rich, but he was sad. He knew he was missing something. He knew he did not have eternal life. Look at the testimony of Solomon. Uh, Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? And then what about the writer of Proverbs who says this, don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Be wise enough to know when to quit. Because isn't this true? In the blink of an eye, wealth disappears. For it will sprout wings and fly away like an eagle. Riches can lull us to sleep. 
the rich fool of Luke chapter 12. I, I need to do something else. I need to build bigger barns. I need to enlarge my estate. That night, the angel of the Lord came to him and said, Tonight your soul is required of you. So are you really ready? What's the bigger barn going to do for you now? Or what about the parable or the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16? The rich man ended up in hell. Lazarus, the beggar in paradise. They could see across to one another, but they couldn't move from one to the other. The rich man who was in torment said, would you let, please, would you let Lazarus, the beggar, who I used to make fun of, would you let him dip his finger in the water and put it on my tongue? To grant me relief. And they said there, we can't because there's a great chasm between hell and paradise. And so then he said, could you send somebody to talk to my brothers? And the response was, if you didn't believe, neither will thee. Riches will they. Riches can lull us to sleep. Number two, the love of wealth can make us blind to the needs of others and incapable of fulfilling God's demand. Remember what Jesus said the two greatest commandments were? When he was asked what are the greatest commandments, he replied, Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. When the rich man said, What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Don't covet. Honor your father and mother. In other words, these commandments that make us think about others. Oftentimes, wealth can make us blind to others. The man's response, he left sad instead of following in obedience. Somehow he'd become blind to the need of those around him. And look at me for just a moment. Regardless of the level of our wealth, our relative wealth can make us blind to the needs of others. How often do we at least think if we don't say, I've worked hard for mine. I'm not about to help someone else. Let them work hard. Or how many times have we have said they got themselves in that mess, their own mistakes, their own poor decisions. So often wealth can give us a tendency toward a blind eye to the poor and the needy. Number three, this is the hardest one in the whole sermon. We must discern. And I couldn't shorten this statement any. I tried, but this, I, I wanted to say all of this. We must discern between necessities and luxuries. And we must reject our lust for the latter and our tendency to blur the distinctive. To lust for luxury. I'm not talking about having luxury. To lust for luxury runs counter to a passionate pursuit of God. First John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, when you lust after it, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world only offers a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. To lust for luxury runs counter to a passionate pursuit of God. To lust for luxury is to commit idolatry. Put to death the sinful. Colossians 3, 5. Earthly things lurking within you have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Do not be greedy, 
For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. How many are still glad you came this morning? All right. To lust for luxury is to deny God's ability to satisfy. Paul says, I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you've always been concerned, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. To lust for luxury is to deny that we through Christ can be content with what we have. Can't be content unless I have that stuff. That's to deny the word of God that says I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. To lust for luxury is to create conflict with others. A covetous spirit leads to conflict. It destroys relationship. Listen to these strong words of James. You want what you don't have so you scheme and you kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and you wage war to take it away from them. You don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. See, living by the world's wisdom leads to envy and covetousness. Hatred and violence to get what we want. It is a dog-eat-dog world that we live in. And even Christians sometimes struggle to rejoice in the blessings of others because instead they envy what somebody else has. Many years back, I watched the movie. Many of you probably saw it, Gorillas in the Mist. Documents the story of Jane Goodall Goodall and her experiment with chimpanzees. And she found that they were pretty placid and And got along pretty well. But if you put bananas among them, they got a little bit testy. And when a new food supply came, the stronger ones always really reared up and became more aggressive to keep it all for themselves. That's how it is with us. The more we have, the more we want, the more jealous we are of those who have what we want. And Jesus wants to free us from that. Number four, I'm almost done. A radical trust. Even with our wealth is required of all who desire to truly follow Jesus. The rich man, listen, please get this. Give me four more minutes and I'll be done. The rich man revered Jesus. He honored him. He respected him. But Jesus required more than belief, honor, reverence. This man even wanted to obey. But Jesus said one thing you lack. And the one thing he lacked, look right here, was a radical trust in Jesus. He wanted to serve God on his own terms. He did not want to be exposed as a vulnerable child that had to trust someone else. Please get this. This man had accumulated obedience, keeping of rules to secure his eternal life, but still didn't feel secure. But he had accumulated possession. To secure his earthly life. He didn't want to put that on a spiritual plane. I'll take care of that myself. I'm going to be obedient so I can go to heaven. But I'm going to take care of my own possessions. To make sure I am cared for in this life. Jesus wanted him to trust him for both. In a world that is wary of commitment. 
Jesus wants us to trust him with our whole lives. Why does God expect believers to tithe? Why does God expect believers when they get their paycheck to give 10%? Why does God expect that? Because God needs it absolutely not. He owns the cattle of a thousand hills. Do you think that God really needs what we give to him? Absolutely not. But God wants you to trust him. He wants you to say, I trust that God, the one who created, spoke the world into existence, who saved me, I trust you enough to believe that you somehow can take the 90% when I'm obedient to you and make the 90% go further than the 100% because you are faithful to your word and I trust you. Somebody say amen if you believe that. Not because he needs it. It's because he doesn't want us finding our own way and failing to trust him with even the earthly things. Number five, and I'm done. The call to radical trust is not just for the wealthy. Everyone must be willing to give up whatever stands in the way of a total commitment to follow Jesus and to love his people. Living in this radical way may seem hard for the wealthy because they have so much to lose. But this call is not just for the wealthy. The fishermen and the tax collectors, the prosperous landowners and the day workers were all called in one day by Jesus to abandon everything and follow him. Whatever stands in the way of our total commitment and abandonment must go. If I'm going to follow Jesus completely. And a reward beyond imagination awaits those who are willing to follow him. But in this life, Mark said, there might even be a little bit of persecution. But the eternal reward is beyond what we could ever expect. Um, Growing up as a kid, I would go over to my... uh, grandmother, my grandma Holt's house, many times on a Saturday night or maybe on a Sunday afternoon. And, and uh, Grandma Holt, I would go over many times with my cousin Beth, who was my age, and her dad was my Uncle Wayne. And we would go over to Grandma Holt's house. And, and uh, Grandma Holt was not a good singer. She did not have a choir voice. She loved to worship, and she had this one little bookcase that had a glass front in it. I actually have it in my office. And in that bookcase, there was an old hymnal. And uh, it was not melodies of praise or hymns of glorious praise. For those of you who grew up in the Assemblies of God, it was neither of those. It was an old, old hymnal. And she would always pull out and would sing to, to us. This was her favorite song. Many of you will know it. One of the verses says that in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet or we will walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. Of course, it's trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And folks, I'm telling you that's still true today. You will not be happy, you will not be fulfilled as a follower of Jesus until you learn to trust and obey. I'd like for you to stand for just a moment. I want to tell you one last story and then we're going to be done this morning. We're going to pray and sing a chorus and we'll be done. Ann Dillard tells the story of a ill-fated 
1948 mission. It was actually called the Franklin Expedition, named after Sir Captain John Franklin. And it was an expedition that, that was to, um, to voyage into the one channel of the Arctic that had not yet had safe passage. 129 on this ship. These were proud Britishmen. This ship was something else. It was decked out, had a full library in it, had a pipe organ in it, had a plateware that had the initials of the officers in the service engraved on it, silver goblets. And everybody wore their military garb all the time they were on the ship. They uh, wore the blues with the all of the, the fancy embroidery. They wore that very proudly on the ship. They were set out to go where no one had gone before. It's a very proud mission led by a very proud leader. But um, they became icebound. They could not get the ship maneuvered out of the ice. And finally, some of them realized they were going to have to walk back or try to walk and get help. But so proud, they, uh, instead of instead of bundling up, they, they walked out very brave and proud in their military uniforms. Some of them, later they found, everyone perished, but they found clumps of bodies and skeletons. They found individuals still clothed in their military garb, holding silver goblets in their hand, holding plateware that had initials in their hand. And, and we look at that now, and, and if any of them could speak, not one of them would say, boy, I really wish I'd have carried one more silver goblet with me out there in the middle of the Arctic to freeze and die. And yet our hanging on to things that are ultimately useless will one day look no less foolish. Many cannot even envision their life without things, the things that they cherish. Sadly, there, there are many that can't envision life without the things they cherish, but they're in danger of losing the more important life and that spiritual life. God calls us to radically trust Him, whatever that looks for each of us. Heads bowed, please, for just a moment. If you're here today and you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life. You've never said, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that you died for me and I've never given you my life before. But today, before we walk out of this room, I want to surrender my life to your Lordship. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want my sins to be forgiven. I want to know, I want to be secure that I have eternal life someday with you in heaven. If that's you today, and you want us to pray for you, would you just slip up a hand? Anyone in this room that would say, pray for me. I want to surrender my life to the Lordship of Jesus. Anyone in this place, thank you. Anyone else that would slip up a hand and say, pray for me. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life today. Anyone else? Anyone else? I want everybody to thank you. I want everybody to pray this prayer right now out loud with me. Before I do that, listen, praying this prayer does not save anyone. Praying this prayer and meaning it by faith, laying hold of what Jesus did 
you become a new creature in Christ and then you begin to walk with him and serve him. And I want everybody to pray this out loud. And those of you who raised your hands, I'm going to encourage you to do two things. Number one, I want you to mean this prayer when you pray it. Number two, I'd like for you to talk to Kyle. He'll be up at the platform right after service. Just go and speak with him for a minute. We have a little booklet we want to give you. But would everybody pray this prayer out loud? Jesus, I believe. When you died on the cross, you did so for my sins. You paid the price. You paid the penalty for my sin. I could never earn salvation. I could never deserve it. My very best day is not good enough. So today I place my trust in you. And by faith I say, I believe you died for me. I receive that. I receive your sacrifice as providing salvation for me. Come and live inside my life. Forgive me of my sins. Take residence in me. Be my Lord. With my mouth, I confess you. You are my Lord. And in my heart, I believe you have raised from the dead. And with the Spirit's help, I will serve you.